Max, and I'm a happy member of Al-Anon. I want to thank the committee for asking us to come. Uh, we're originally from this part of the country. We grew up in Ohio. And I <laughs> but I was born in Butler, Pennsylvania. <laughs> and Paul and I were married in Pittsburgh. <laughs> and he went to pharmacy school in Pittsburgh, Pitt. So I always have fond memories, although I wouldn't come back. <laughs> and we're from Laguna Nigel, California, and <laughs> it's halfway between Los Angeles and San Diego, so that will give you some idea where it, where it is. Anyway, another thing I'd like to tell you before I get started is that Paul always says I give the perverted version of this story. And I like to remind all of you that I was the one that was sober. Uh, <laughs> so you can draw your own conclusions. <laughs> I always say I tell the true story. Um, <clears throat> I wouldn't have come to Al-Anon in a hundred years because I didn't think our problem had anything to do with drinking. I thought Paul was crazy. And so my solution was to try to find him a psychiatrist. And he wouldn't go, so I went. And I <laughs> I thought that if I went, I could maneuver him into going. Well, it didn't work, and I ended up going three and a half years. Uh, I went to four different ones. And uh, the first one I went to, I didn't like him at all because everything I said, he laughed. And I, I didn't think the things I was telling him were very funny. But he had me tested. I took the Minnesota multiphasic test, which is about 600 questions, and the Rorschach test. And I had the feeling that I was being tricked because in the Minnesota multiphasic thing, uh, they would ask a question, and then about 10 down would be the same question, only worded a little differently. So I was very careful when I took that. And the Rorschach test, I had heard that that had something to do with sex, so I was particularly careful with that one, and I only saw animals. Uh, when he gave me the results, he told me I was very rigid and would never change. And I was horrified because I was the only one doing anything about this mess, and here was this professional saying, you might as well give up because nothing's going to change. Anyway, I went to him for about six months. And then Paul decided that I was such a mess that he was going to take me over to Westwood, which is part of Los Angeles, to have me hypnotized. Now, Paul had tried to hypnotize me one time. <laughs> uh, he had taken some classes in hypnosis, and we'd go to Las Vegas, and I would sit in on the sessions, and they were kind of interesting, so I agreed when he suggested it. And then he said that I had to relax, and he told me to lie on the couch, and he gave me a mill town so I would relax, and I went to sleep. Uh, so he wouldn't do it anymore, but he thought this fellow over in Westwood could do it. And at that time, the freeway wasn't through, and it took forever to go over there. And I don't think that fellow ever hypnotized me either, but 
Anyway, we went over there six Wednesdays, which was our day off. I worked in the office for Paul. And um, I guess the sixth session, he decided that maybe I should see someone in Anaheim because that's where we lived at the time. Also, he suggested that maybe I should try a little Librium. Uh, and since I worked in the office, and we used to get uh, catalogs with drugs so I could get anything I wanted, and I knew something horrible was going to happen. I didn't know what or when, but I was going to be prepared. So I sent away and got a thousand Librium. Uh, I had them everywhere. <laughs> Just in case something happened and I wouldn't be prepared. But I only took one a day. That's all I needed was one a day. And um, I took those for a couple years. And uh, then when Paul had a convulsion one time, I was explaining to the psychiatrist. I didn't tell him I was taking the Librium uh, about it. And he, he explained to me that if you were taking large doses of tranquilizers and you suddenly stopped, you could have a convulsion. And my first response was, I don't want to have a convulsion. So I quit. And, but I didn't have any withdrawal or anything. So I guess I'm, I'm fortunate in that respect. Anyway, um, Paul and I had absolutely no communication. Bill talked about communication. We didn't talk, uh, except that I would wait until 11 o'clock at night. And by that time, Paul had a few drinks and a few pills, and that was my time to have this serious conversation. <laughs> and it always ended up the same way. I'd cry and Paul would be mad. And then I'd wait a couple days and think, I didn't work that right, and I would try again. I never did anything different. I did the same thing over and over. Isn't that the uh, definition of insanity, doing the same thing, expecting different results? Well, that's what I was doing until finally I I sort of gave up, and I, I thought, there's no use talking to this guy. Anyway, so... Like I say, we we didn't spend any time together. Even though I worked in the office for him, I was out at the front desk and he was in the back and I did all my communicating by writing out. And mostly it was about a patient wanting the kills refilled or whatever. And so there wasn't much communication going on. But um, anyway, one... Um, one Sunday morning, I was showing Paul some rest spots on the floor in our family room, and all of a sudden, he was on the floor having a convulsion. And I was terrified because I'd never seen anybody have a convulsion before. So I called the doctor in the next block, and finally he got there, and that, by that time, Paul had awakened, or whatever you do when you come out of a convulsion. So Art decided that Paul should go in the hospital. And I rode in the ambulance with him, and when he got to the hospital, he refused to stay overnight unless I stayed too, so I slept in the next bed. And in the morning, he felt fine and came home. While he was there, a neurologist saw him, and he wanted Paul to come in his office the following Wednesday and have some lab tests. So I had to drive him over there, and um, Paul walked into the doctor's consultation uh, office and said, it, the only problem was it was a marital problem. Now, I couldn't understand how I could cause him to have a convulsion. <laughs> but if he said so, it had to be true. I believed everything he said. You know, I've learned on Al-Anon 
that that ain't necessarily so. <laughs> anyway, he refused to have any of the tests, and we went back to living the way we had been. Well, then 14 months later, one Saturday night, I was watching television in the living room, and because if, if I were in the living room, Paul would be in the bedroom or vice versa. We didn't spend any time together. And I heard this noise back in the uh, bedroom, and I walked back, and there's Paul on the floor having a convulsion. So I sat down on the edge of the bed and I watched him. <laughs> and when he finished, I said, you've had a convulsion, you better go to bed. And I hadn't even been to Al-Anon yet. <laughs> so the next morning I called the neurologist. I called him for everything. He He threw me off, though, because... Everything, I didn't feel that I had anybody I could talk to. Uh, several of the doctors in our building approached me about Paul's change of personality, and I agreed, but that's all I would say, because I thought if I told them how we were living, Paul would kill me. So I didn't, but I talked to this neurologist. I would call him every time something happened, because we didn't know him socially. And I, anyway, he, he threw me off because he told me, that Paul either had a brain tumor or early senility or something else. And then Paul told me he had a brain tumor. So, you know, if he said it, had to be true. So I was focused in on that. I knew he drank, but I drank too with Paul. Drink for drink for many years. And as he often said, we tried to outdrink one another, and he won by an allergy. Um, <laughs> Anyway, uh, so after the second convulsion, I called this neurologist again, and he suggested that Paul go back to the Mayo Clinic because that's where he had trained, and he said that he would write a letter and, and get him an appointment. And it took a month, and um, during that month, Paul changed his mind I don't know how many times, but anyway, we did go back. We went back in the middle of December to Rochester, uh, Minnesota, and I made up my mind that I was going to get in and see this neurosurgeon and tell him about the pills that Paul was taking. Now, at that time, which was the end of 66, I really didn't know that much about what pills would do to you. The only thing that made me aware was the fact that there was a young doctor in our town that all the, the medical community knew that he took drugs. But nobody did anything, but I guess they didn't know what to do any more than I knew what to do. And uh, he died. I think he was 35 or something like that. So that made me a little aware that maybe Paul could die. So I thought, I'm going to talk to that doctor. Well, Paul started through the clinic on a Monday, and it took me till Thursday to get up enough courage to try to go see this doctor. And I went over, and they had this huge waiting room, and everybody in that waiting room was a patient, and if you were a patient, you had a number. Well, I wasn't a patient, and I didn't have a number. I don't know what I told that gal, but she let me in. And I told the doctor that Paul was taking some kind of pills. I assumed that they were sleeping pills, but I didn't know. And, you know, that was so important to me that I get in to see that doctor, and I guess I had planned on it for a month. And after I did it, I put it out of my mind, and I didn't remember that. For six years, 
And after I remembered, I waited another year to tell Paul because he ended up in the nut ward. And I think he often wondered what happened. Um, anyway, they locked him up, and it was the day before Christmas, and I went over to see him, and he wanted out. And the only way he could get out was that if I agreed to take responsibility for him. And I didn't know whether I should do that or not because that was my last chance to get him medical help. But anyway, he told me that if I didn't agree, he'd never speak to me again. So what could I do? I didn't know what a good opportunity that was. <laughs> anyway, he promised me he wouldn't take any more pills and he wouldn't drink anymore, and I don't know what all he promised me. So I agreed. And then I don't, I, I'm a little hazy about when we left, but I don't think it was the next day. I don't think it was Christmas Day. I think it was the day after. And we got on the plane and had a big fight over whether or not he'd drink the free booze. I won. He didn't drink, but he wouldn't talk or eat either, all the way back to California. And when we got back, he got himself a bottle and drank it all. But then, of course, that was my fault if I hadn't argued with him, right? Anyway, uh, uh, he he drank the bottle of scotch that he got and uh, and then went to bed, I guess. I don't know, but I was up at 4 o'clock the next morning. I, I was frantic. I, I didn't know what to do now, and I could hardly wait for it to be 9 o'clock so I could call the neurologist and tell him what happened. But I have to backtrack a little bit here because in my last psychiatrist I went to, um, after I'd gone to him a short time, he wanted to see Paul, so I talked Paul into going, and uh, uh, he went in and stayed about five minutes and said, I have nothing to say. That was the end of that. And then a funny thing happened to us after we were in the program five, six years. Dr. Persh, who was in charge of the Navy program out there, had asked Paul to um, come and, and, and uh, be on a panel and we just assumed it was something for the Navy, and it was a dinner meeting, so I didn't go. And when Paul came home, he was all excited and said, guess who I saw? Because they talked to the Long Beach Medical Association. And it turned out he talked to my last psychiatrist, and that was the fellow that I had gotten him to go see. And uh, he said he noticed this fellow sitting in the front row nodding and smiling, and he thought, gee, this guy must really be interested in alcoholism. And afterwards, he came running up to Paul and said, Remember me? And Paul looked at his badge and said, Were you at the VA hospital? And he said, No, I was one of your wife's psychiatrists. <laughs> and he was delighted to see Paul and acted like he knew all along what the problem was. But I really don't think so, because after we came to the program, Paul sent literature and a letter to all of my psychiatrists and uh, told them that I was on Al-Anon, he was on AA, and if they'd like to talk to us, we'd be glad to talk to them. We never heard from any of them. I also went to priests, and I didn't go to the parish priest. I would go to a priest I didn't know, and I heard about this chaplain over at St. Joseph's Hospital in Orange, and I called and made an appointment with him, and I um, didn't bother telling Paul I was going, and I was gone for hours. And this priest said that what he did in marriage counseling, he would talk to the wife alone, and then he would talk to the husband alone, and then he would talk to the two of us together. So after I'd been gone three or four hours, um, I came home. Paul wanted to know where I'd been. And I told him, and I said, he wants to see you. And so he very reluctantly agreed he would go. So 
I got on the phone and made the appointment for the next day. And um, he went over, and he was gone a long time, too. And when he came home, he was furious. And I said, are we going to go see him together? And he said, no, I'm not going back. So I waited till the next day, and I called the priest to find out what happened. And he said, your husband is the most stubborn man I've ever seen. And that was the whole explanation. We found out later that this priest was also an alcoholic, <laughs> drinking at the time. So no wonder they didn't get along. I made a married couple's retreat, and I went alone. Uh, nobody thought this was strange you know my husband was a doctor he couldn't get away <laughs> it wasn't he couldn't get away he didn't want to go um, anyway uh, and I talked to that priest for several hours and he came to the same conclusion that I did that Paul needed psychiatric care but I didn't know how to get him there so anyway that's the way we were living and, and uh, then we went to the Mayo Clinic and so when I called the neurologist after uh, we came back, he asked whether I thought Paul would see a local psychiatrist. Well, I didn't know, but I would ask him. And when it got up, he agreed. And uh, I, I don't remember either how long it was, whether it was the next day or the next day. But anyway, we went over to see this psychiatrist. And in my searching for a psychiatrist, I had tried to get in to see this fellow. But uh, when I called, I thought the only day I could go was Wednesday, and the girl just said, we're not here on Wednesday, and I never had the courage to call back. But I think it was better that I didn't, because if I had been in there manipulating and maneuvering, I don't think it would have worked out the way it did. Anyway, the psychiatrist talked to Paul for 45 minutes, talked to me for 10 minutes, and locked him up in the local nut ward. And I knew he was in the right place. <coughs> And I could go see him every day for an hour. Now, Paul spent his time locked up in the nut ward making lists of things for me to do to keep the world running while he was locked up in the nut ward. And you have to be pretty crazy to do that. But not nearly as crazy as me going over each day for my list, like I did. And... <laughs> Every day I'd go over, he'd have this big long list. I, I guess I wouldn't even answer the phone because I knew it was Paul with something else for me to do. And all I wanted to do was to go to bed and pull the covers up over my head. Anyway, uh, one Saturday night I went over to see him. Well, first of all, I don't remember how long Paul was there until the psychiatrist had somebody from AA picking him up and taking them to AA. And I thought, why Why is he taking them to AA? They don't put crazy people there, do they? <laughs> or do they? <laughs> anyway, so he was going to AA, and I, I was just confused. And I went over on a Saturday night, and this AA fellow came in, and Paul introduced us, and Frank said, uh, we're going to an AA meeting tonight. Would you like to go along? I didn't have anything else to do, so I said, okay. Now, I'd heard of AA, I'd heard of Al-Anon. In fact, ten years before I came to the program, I was sent back to New York for Al-Anon literature for Paul's patients. But I didn't read it. Why would I read that stuff? Even though I'd grown up in an alcoholic family, uh, my parents died uh, when I was, when I was four months old when my mother died, and then my dad took me to Ohio, and then he died when I was about three, so I never really knew either one of them. 
So I lived with my grandmother sometimes and my aunt sometimes. And when I lived with my grandmother, I had two uncles that were alcoholics. And there was no doubt in my mind, uh, you know, that they had a problem. And when I stayed with my aunt, her husband was. But I think he was the periodic. But Paul didn't fit the picture of what I thought an alcoholic was. And uh, because they drank, especially my uncles, once they started to drink, they would drink. And um, so, um, anyway, I, we got in the car with this guy, and I thought he was a real kook. You know, he was telling us all kinds of personal things. And you don't talk to strangers like that. He was telling us about how he and his wife had broken up and he was trying to get back together with her. And so he gave her guitar lessons for Christmas. And then she ran off with a guitar teacher. <laughs> and I thought, my God, what have we gotten into? And he took us to Laguna Beach to the Canyon Club, and it took about, I guess, 40 minutes or so to get down there. And he talked all the way down. And Paul and I didn't say a word. And when we got to the Canyon Club and went inside, we got together and decided we weren't going with him anymore. <laughs> anyway, um, I remember being so afraid that we'd run into somebody we knew. And I looked all around, and... Thankfully, we, di we didn't run into anybody we knew for a year, and I I'm grateful for that. I'm not sure we would have stayed because our anonymity was so important. But anyway, when the meeting started, they turned out all the lights and just had candles, and then I could be comfortable. And I, I don't remember anything that was said that night, but there was a feeling in the room. And when I think about that, that amazes me because I... I hadn't felt anything for a long, long time, but I felt something in that room that night, and they laughed, and I also hadn't laughed for a long time, and uh, I wanted to come back. I don't, I don't think I went to too many AA meetings while Paul was in the hospital those three weeks, but then Frank had this Al-Anon gal call me, I guess the next day, and I didn't like her at all. She'd call me up a dozen times a day. And I didn't have time to talk on the phone to strangers about Al-Anon, whatever that was. But I did agree that I would go to a meeting with her. And she also took me to Laguna. And the meeting was at noon. And I had to be at her house at 10 o'clock. I didn't get home till 4 o'clock in the afternoon. I couldn't spend all that time. Besides, I worked. And I, I didn't have time. I was very conscious of wasting my time. Besides, I didn't like women's clubs. And things were better. I knew where Paul was. He was locked up. Uh, so I didn't have to worry about him. And uh, so I went to three meetings with her. And then she started calling me and telling me I shouldn't work for Paul. Well, that did it. And I told her what she could do with Al-Anon. So I quit Al-Anon. But I continued to go to AA. And I, you know, I hear a lot of women say they come and they poke their husband. I, I didn't do that because by that time, I wasn't listening for Paul anymore. I was listening for me. And I identified a lot with the feelings because I'd never heard anyone express themselves the way they did in AA. So then after Paul got out, he would go to one or two meetings a week whether he needed them or not. 
and we'd always go to Laguna because we couldn't figure out the schedule. And uh, we we didn't couldn't figure out how long it would take us to get there. So if we got there too early, the meeting started at 8:30. We'd go and have a soda or something, and we'd get into the meeting at 29 minutes after eight. Sit by the door, and as soon as they said the Lord's Prayer, we're out the door. And on the way home, we complained because no one was friendly. <laughs> Nobody talked to us, <laughs> and they don't have a coffee break there, so you know I don't know when. Well, they didn't know we existed actually for the first year, and uh, but anyway, that's the way our communication started. We. I had given up trying to talk to Paul, uh, but then we we would talk about what the speaker had said, and that's the way our communication started. And um, it took a long time; it took a couple of years before we were able to express how we felt rather than what we thought. Because I always felt that if I could convince Paul to think like I did, then everything would be fine. You know, well. That's never happened, <laughs> and I don't think it ever will, but today it's okay. I let him, I give him the right to be wrong. I, <laughs> anyway, uh, so then we only went to Laguna for, well, I don't know how many years. We Paul practiced in Garden Grove, but we never went there because we were afraid he'd run into a patient, and, uh. Anyway, uh, but then we really enjoyed the meetings, and it was, we thought it was uh, like somebody coming and going to the bottom and then pulling themselves up by their bootstraps. I, I know that that's not true now, but that's the way we thought. So it was kind of a, I don't know what you say. And then, like I say, they laughed, and there were a lot of good meetings. On Saturday night, they used to have a, a group come from somewhere else and talk, and there could be anywhere. Uh, uh, Clara said she used to come to those meetings, but they were real up meetings, and I'm I'm very grateful that Frank took us there. And, and later on, I did write a note of apology to the woman who took me to Al-Anon and thank her for taking me to the meeting she did. But um, and then a short time after I came to Al-Anon, uh, she quit. So, anyway, that's the way it goes. Um, so then we were going to meetings, and um, but not, we didn't know anybody. And it was like they were speaking a foreign language. Uh, we couldn't understand what they were talking about. They talked about 502s, which was a drunk driving charge in California. We didn't know what that was because Paul drank at home. He never had a 502. And then they'd talk about being 86. We didn't know what that meant either. And I remember this alcoholic woman one time standing up there and saying that she always been, wanted to be a hooker. And I turned to Paul and I said, what's a hooker? <laughs> I, I was very sheltered. I, I learned a whole new language here. <laughs> Anyway, and so then 10 months later, they had a Southern California convention in Anaheim, and uh, we lived about five minutes away from the convention center, and I, I don't know why I did this, but I went over to the Al-Anon meeting on Saturday afternoon, and Paul didn't go, 
And I went in and sat in the back of the room, and one of the gals who had ridden in the car when I went to those three meetings, three Al-Anon meetings, came in and spoke to me, and she said, why don't you come and sit with us? And I was very grateful to Martha, because I certainly didn't feel a part of. And uh, so I, I went and sat with them, and for the first time I think I heard something. And there were four women talked, and they talked about release with love, and I guess you call it emotional detachment, but it's the same thing. And uh, I listened, and I thought, well, I guess Al-Anon does have something, and I'll give it another try. Uh, but I didn't want to go to Laguna because it was too far, and we were always busy on a Monday and at the office. So I tried some meetings someplace closer to home, and I think I went six times, and I didn't get anything out of them. So I always tell newcomers, go to at least six different meetings until you find the one you're comfortable in. So I thought, well, I'll go back to Laguna. And uh, I was scared to death because it was a big meeting. There would be 50, 60 people there. And they had tables set up. That was also at the Canyon Club at that time. And uh, I would go in and try to figure out where I could sit that nobody would notice me. And it seemed like no matter where I sat, that's where they started. And, I, you know, I didn't know what they were talking about. I would listen, and I'd think, I wonder how they know that, you know, because uh, I didn't know that, and I certainly wasn't going to open my mouth and let them know how stupid I was. So, uh, anyway, it seemed, like I say, it seemed like they started, and uh, one of our pamphlets has the three obstacles in it, and they read that at the meeting I go to, and um, that gave me the right to not talk so I would just say that but my name is Maxine and I pass because in that it says you do it in your own way in your own time and and for me I'm glad I did it that way because then I could listen otherwise I was worrying about what I was going to say and I I didn't know what to say so I did that for a whole year but eventually I got comfortable in that meeting and I, I learned a lot of things I when I first we also read the do's and don'ts, and uh, in that it says you don't pour out liquor and you don't hide liquor. And I didn't do that. And um, resentment was another word I heard, and of course I didn't have any of those either. Um, <laughs> but after a while I remembered that periodically during the drinking, Paul would get up in the morning. They strictly off the last game that they played and I'd help him so pour out the beer. We're going to and I would think, you know, he'd say we're going to change all our friends and we're going to drink. And I thought, this is just one of his kooky ideas, you know. And and I'd think, this is a waste because I liked beer. And uh, I thought, I'm not going to buy as much anymore if he's going to throw it down the sink every morning. <laughs> and by, by that night, He'd say to me, why don't you go to the store and get me three cans of beer? And we'd argue a little bit, and I'd always end up going. And I'd feel silly, you know, going to the store and taking three cans out of a six-pack. But anyway, and then on the way home, I'd think, well, when I get home, I'll have one. When I got home, he didn't want me to have one. And I couldn't understand when I was good enough to go get it. I guess I could have gotten four. Uh... That never occurred to me. <laughs> but knowing what I know now, if I had gotten four, he would have wanted four. 
And then the other thing was that Paul treated another doctor and his family, and every Christmas Charlie would give Paul a case of scotch, and Paul would drink a couple bottles and the rest I'd hide. And I'd put him in dresser drawers and up in my cupboards, and then periodically I'd go back and I'd count them, and I couldn't remember how many I'd put there in the first place. <laughs> and one time I had an extra quart, and I had no place at home to put it, so I took it down to the office and we had an L-shaped desk and we never used the cupboard under there so I thought that's a good place and I pushed this quart of scotch in and it clinked up against another bottle <laughs> and I reached in and got an empty half pint of scotch and I thought those stupid cleaning people <laughs> never occurred to me that Paul had put it there but the dumbest part of all was I left my full court. <laughs> I don't have any quarrel with the, uh, the non-alcoholic being sicker than the alcoholic. <laughs> anyway, when we came to the program, Paul had found all of that scotch that I had. You must have thought he had a bonanza. Uh, <laughs> So anyway, it just took me a little a little while to <laughs> to realize what uh, what I had been doing, and all that stuff made sense to me when I was doing it. Anyway, gradually I learned I learned things on the program. I I am more comfortable than I've ever been in my life. And if anyone had told me when I first came in that I would do this, you wouldn't have seen me for dust. I'll tell you, I. Never planned to do that. And the only reason I do is we went to the International Convention in Miami in 1970, and uh, al had put out a new book. I don't see it around anymore, but it was called The Best of the Forum. And the forum, for you alcoholics that don't know, it's like the grapevine, only it's for al It comes out in New York. And um, I bought the book, and that was my first mistake because... When I read it, it seemed to me that it said it was your responsibility to share with others that others had shared with you. And then I got to feeling guilty because Paul had started to talk after the first year, and then people would ask me. And I said, no, no, <laughs> I don't talk. But then after I read this dumb book, <laughs> well, okay, the next time somebody asks me to talk, I'll talk. And if they don't like me, they don't need to ask me back. And they didn't. <laughs> For a long time, they didn't. <laughs> and I think I still talk that way. I think, well, you know, I've only got my story. I don't have a very dramatic story. I could sum my whole story up in denial and stupidity and sit down. <laughs> but anyway, I have learned a lot. And... Uh, it's helped me with a lot of things that have nothing to do with alcoholism. It's helped me with my kids, and they've done things that I couldn't have handled if I hadn't had Al-Anon. Um, and I, I ask myself three questions when um, something comes up. You know, is it important? Is it any of my business? And what can I do about it? And if the first two is no and the last nothing, I better back away. Um, I, um, like I say, with my kids, our, our oldest daughter, I had a lot of trouble with her. And um, our two girls are adopted. 
And Anne, I swear, was problems from the time she was two years old. And um, anyway, we were always being called to school because of things she was doing. And, and I took on the responsibility. I felt guilty for everything she did. And I thought if I were a good mother, she wouldn't act like that. And I finally, I don't know if any of you know Elsa C., but every time I saw her, I would talk to her. And she finally convinced me that she felt that every child was born with a certain set of characteristics and it didn't matter what you did. And that got rid of my guilt. Uh, I don't know how many times I had to hear it before I really knew what she was saying. But anyway, I'm grateful for the program just for that reason. Um, I mean, because of my kids. Because I think when I came in, I thought, well... Paul was an adult, he could take care of himself, and, and I'd take care of me, but I don't know, you still feel responsible for your kids. And uh, But anyway, she left home when she was 18, she was going to junior college, she had a little money, and she had a part-time job. Within three months, that was all gone, and the girl she was living with wanted her out, and I could understand why, as she drove me crazy, and... Uh, <laughs> So Paul and I and the other daughter had a little conference, and we decided we didn't want her home because she caused too much trouble. And uh, so I found her a place to live down in L.A., and we paid her room and board. And she had to think about it for a while, but she decided she would go. And uh, she went down there, and we didn't hear from her. She just wouldn't contact us. And uh, um So Paul and I went on vacation and we came home. I think she went down maybe in July and this was October. And when we came home, we called and the nun said, um, Oh, Ann moved out yesterday. And uh, Paul said, Do you think we should try to contact her? And I said, No, I think she'll, she'll contact us. And again, I have to backtrack because when I first started Al-Anon, everything I did, Paul would say, don't give me that Al-Anon crap. This is for real. (laughs) So then he decided he would come to Al-Anon to see what was really going on. And then at that time, he stayed for a year and a half and loved it. And he goes with me now, too. He, He goes, and I'm grateful for that because I think it helps our, our, um, marriage really and he understands that we don't spend our time talking about the alcoholic we have much more important things to talk about um, <laughs> and it's it's the same program just a little different approach and uh, I think uh, we learn how to not to react to what other people are doing I mean you don't do it 100% but most of the time you do and um I think I, it's a great program. I, I'm very grateful for Al-Anon. And uh, like I say, I, I, Paul says something about if it weren't for me, you wouldn't have Al-Anon. And I said, well, if it weren't for you, I wouldn't need Al-Anon. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, then uh, I think I, Anne called and came to see us then on a Saturday. And she and her boyfriend uh, arrived, and they were driving a rented car. And she had run up a $140 motel bill, and she wanted us to give her the money. And Paul told her he could only share his experience, strength, and hope with her. 
And he'd never had that problem, and she'd have to figure it out for herself. So anyway, I didn't hear from her the next day, and Monday she called me at the office, and she said, Daddy doesn't understand. They're going to put me in jail. And I said, oh, okay, well, we'll see you around. And she said, what in the hell's going on here? Because always before I was on the ceiling when she'd do this stuff. Anyway, we didn't give her the money, and she had to sign a note, and, I, and they kept some of her clothes and some of her books. And I guess she paid it off. I don't know. I didn't ask. And uh, But I don't think we would have done Anne any favor at all if we had given her that money. I mean, they've done a lot of crazy things without it. Uh, she married this fellow when she was about four or five months pregnant and uh, kept saying they weren't going to keep the baby. So I didn't say anything. I, I thought, I'm not going to get into that one. Anyway, when she had the baby, she didn't let us know, or they didn't let us know. And then on a busy afternoon, they walked in the office with the baby. And I was a little surprised. And when I asked her about it, she said, oh, changed her mind. And that's the way Anne operated with me all the time. And uh, anyway, when she had the next baby, she was frantic because she couldn't get a hold of us. And said, where have you been? We were gone for the weekend because she was trying to get a hold of us. I guess she found out the other method didn't work. But anyway, they, after they were married a short time, they and some of their friends decided that they didn't like organized religion. And they were going to start their own church. And they believed in baptism by immersion and wanted to know if they could use our pool for the baptism. <laughs> and I said, uh, I never heard anybody talk about this. Uh, I said, ask your father. <laughs> and he said they could. <laughs> I don't know who got dunked because... <laughs> I couldn't watch. But you know if I hadn't had Alan on, no way. No way would that have happened. Anyway, a short time later, that disappeared. I guess she said they got the fighting over the money. <laughs> so <laughs> that didn't take long to disappear. But they've, they've done a lot of crazy things. Her husband joined AA about six or seven years ago. I don't know whether he still goes or not. But Anne never went to Al-Anon. She didn't need it. Um, so he complained to us early on, and uh, Paul tried to talk to her about it, but she wanted no part of it. And the only thing I said to her is, Anne, you know, when both people aren't involved, usually the marriage doesn't stay together. And she just hung her head, and she never did go. So, you know, I figure she knows because both of our girls went to Alatine. So they know that it's there. And I I can't do anything about making them go. And um, I know with the younger daughter, she went to OA because she said she watched us change and she had a weight problem. And so she went to OA because of it. And uh, so when they say, you know, attraction rather than promotion, I, I think that's the way it works. And... Um, Anyway, uh, I, like I say, I don't know whether Ann's husband is still going to AA or not. We don't we don't ask them, and they don't talk about program either. So, whatever. Um, I guess the closer you are to someone, the harder it is to get them to go to the program.
uh, I uh, I talked earlier about uh, my feelings, and I had a hard time with that because I had turned off all my emotion, and it took a long time for me to get back in touch with how I was feeling. In fact, even today, sometimes uh, something will happen that will upset me, and I'll say, "What was my first reaction to that?" And then maybe I can identify what I'm feeling because I'd covered it up with so many, so many things. I didn't know how I felt. And uh, I heard somebody say that when you deny your emotions, you bury them alive. And I thought, how true, <laughs> how true. Um, uh, another thing too, um, we stayed in one place. You must turn my head here. God, my time's about up. Uh, one place for, for 21 years we lived in this one house, and I thought we were never going to move. And then in 1979, we started to move. And we moved five times in six years. And uh, in one of our moves, um, Paul told me he had a bad back, and he couldn't help me with the moving. And so I was pushing all these big boxes around, and I noticed a film in front of my eye, but I thought, well, it'll go away. Well, six weeks later, it was still there, and uh, so I thought I'd better have it checked, and since we were in a new town, I had to find a new doctor, and when I called uh, to get an appointment, the girl wanted to know how long I'd had it, and I said a month, and I know what she was thinking, because she set the appointment up for another month. She probably thought if you'd had it that long, it couldn't be very serious. So anyway, when Paul came home from the hospital that night, I asked him to check my eye with his ophthalmoscope, and he couldn't see anything. And I, I don't know why I did this, but I put my hand over my good eye, and I could only see him from the eyebrows up. And when I told him, he got on the phone and moved my appointment up to the next day, and I saw the doctor about 5, 5.30, and he told me I had a detached retina. And since they didn't know when it happened, I had to have surgery right away. So by 9 o'clock that night, I was in bed in the hospital with my eyes bandaged. And uh, I laid there and I thought, now I could be mad at Paul because I'd mentioned this to him several times. But he didn't act like it was very important. But then doctors' families don't get that good of medical care. Uh <laughs> Or I could be upset with myself because I had problems with that eye before and I should have done something. And then I thought, you know, what good would that do? I mean, to be upset. I mean, this is reality. This is the way it is and I'm going to have to accept whatever happens. So I went to sleep and I was very comfortable. And the next morning I went down to surgery and it turned out the assistant surgeon was the doctor that I knew who was on AA. And I went into the surgery very, very comfortable because the first doctor had told me that I would either lose the sight in that eye or if I didn't, I would have double vision. Anyway, I came out of the surgery. I lost a little sight in that eye, and I never did have double vision. And I have to believe that when I'm willing to let go and let God and let him handle it, it will turn out okay, and I'll turn my will and my life over in everything except moving. Uh, and if my higher power wants to move, he's going to have to move by himself because I'm not moving anymore. Uh, 
like I said, it's hard work. And we didn't move just around the corner. We would move hundreds of miles, you know. And we ended up in Washington State before we came back to California. And so they're going to have to carry me out. Uh, I'm not moving anymore. Uh, I... Uh, I, when I was new, my idea of turning my will and my life over was I would try all my methods first, <laughs> and when they didn't work, then I'd think, I don't care what happens. And then something would happen that I hadn't thought of. And it was always better, always better. So the more that happened to me, the more willing I am to let go the next time, a little earlier. Um, and everything except moving. I, I'm, I'm not going to go along with that. I don't care. Uh, I had had a uh, had some surgery some time before that, and I went in the same hospital, it was Catholic hospital. And the night before the surgery, this pastoral nun came in and talked to me, and she said, uh, "You're going to have surgery tomorrow, aren't you?" And I said, "Yeah." And she said, "You're scared, aren't you?" And I said, "No." She said, "Of course you are." And I just thought to myself, lady, you don't have a program. <laughs> anyway, I, today when I first came and I heard people talk about being grateful and happy and comfortable, I wanted to vomit. I, I couldn't imagine why anybody would want their husband to be an alcoholic. But today I am grateful. Today I am grateful, and I often say I'm grateful that Paul's an alcoholic so we could find this way of life because there was no way that I would have known how to change anything. I mean, I tried, but I, I just didn't know. And, of course, my thinking has changed completely from the things that were important to me when I came in are no longer important. It's much more important for me to be serene than anything I can think of. And I have changed completely. In fact, a woman when I was around about four years uh, told me that I had changed more than anybody she'd ever seen come to this program. And I think that's true, although we don't see the change so much in ourselves. But I was a very shy, withdrawn person and couldn't talk to people, and now I think people wish I'd shut up. Uh, anyway, thank you very much. And um, everything she had to say was very beautiful. Um, at this time, there'll be a 10-minute intermission, and then um, we'll have the AA speaker. Thanks. Are you one up here?